All right, so in the 2nd century, about 1800 years ago, when Christianity was basically brand new out of the box and starting to get traction in the Roman Empire, it happened, as these things do, that it also got opponents, particularly those in the Roman Empire who thought that it was absurd, perverse, not believable. Christianity was crazy and it should be rejected by those who were considering it and abandoned by those who were already in its fold. Now, as a result, as you might guess, and as you probably know, Christians responded to these attacks. And one of the most prominent defenders of the faith was a man named Origen. He wrote a whole book of explanations for the believability, the plausibility of Christianity. He wanted to offer some refutations to the challenges that the Roman opponents were given. And he did. It's a whole book called Contra Celsus. He actually directed it at this one person. But at the very beginning of the book, he said something interesting. And basically he said this, Jesus doesn't really need me to do this. Uh, he doesn't really need a defense. Why? Let me just read you this quote. Jesus is always being falsely accused, and there's never a time when he is not being accused. He is still silent in the face of this and does not answer <clears throat> with his own voice. But he makes his defense in the lives of his genuine disciples for their lives Cry out the real facts and defeat all false charges. So this second century intellectual Christian reading scripture concluded that the best case to be made for the reality of God in Christ is his people, is Christians individually and collectively. That to origin was the real proof, the real evidence. The real argument. To put it a little bit more personally, Origen is saying, if we do a little time travel here, that the saints and the Christians gathered at in-town church prove to Portland that Jesus is Lord and worthy of worship and devotion. This community is the evidence that demands a verdict. Now, does that sound like a little bit too much? A little bit of, uh, you know, pastoral overreach? How could that be? Is that the place that you start whenever you're commending Jesus to others? The communion of the saints, the gathered people of God, is more than just a holy huddle. It's more than just a very intense book club. But it is something alive and even divine and active. So when we confess the communion of the saints, which we're going to do here in just a little bit, there are several things that we are saying, but I just want to highlight two for us this afternoon. And here is the first one. The saints, the people of God, in communion and fellowship with Christ, are... The very presence of Christ in the world. Period. Full stop. You see, the reason that Origen can make the claims that he does about Christians being the proof of Jesus is 
Well, because Scripture teaches this in multiple places. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. But let me read to you just one from the book of Romans. Because we're reformed, right? Romans. Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Of one another. Here, and especially in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the language of body to talk about the church, to talk about God's people, to talk about the communion of the saints as having a real presence in the world. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because a body is something physical, right? It can do things. It can go places. It's not just an idea. It's not ghostly. It is real. It is tactile. There's fingerprints to it. Now, what makes the physical body distinct and unique as a community of people is that it is connected to and made alive by Jesus Christ. You don't have to put your hands up, but you can secretly. How many here have either read or seen one of the versions of the movie Frankenstein by Mary Shelley? They've been making that movie for over 100 years in some version or fashion. Now, you know that story. And in that story, there is a doctor who literally pieces together from the corpses of different body parts, a new and unique body, and then reanimates it. He zaps it and gives it new life. That, y'all, is something like what the communion of saints is. Parts brought together in a new living creation. Now you're thinking, Jason, why did you bring this guy here? How can you compare the communion of the saints to Frankenstein's monster? Very easily, friends. And, and actually not cynically at all. Because places like Ephesians 2 make it clear that before we are in Christ, we are actually spiritually dead. And that what makes the church glorious is not that we are beautiful on our own. Or that, not, or that sometimes we're not ragged or rough looking. But we are glorious because we have been brought together and made alive and joined together by one who is great and beautiful and gives us life. Jesus Christ. You see, we have life and purpose and direction as a community because we have mysterious union with Jesus. And as we see in Hebrews, we are also bound together with those Christians who went before us as well. That great cloud of witnesses, the saints in glory. And with them, we long for and are animated by our hope in the resurrection and the renewal of all things. So how then do we have this mystical union with Jesus? Well, by the Holy Spirit. And we actually see this prophetically laid out in the psalm that we have prayed together in Psalm 133. You see, in this short psalm, we are told that the dwelling of the brothers, the dwelling of the saints, the dwelling of the fellow worshipers of God is good. And then we have this interesting imagery. It says that the fellowship is like oil coming down over the head and beard of Aaron to the opening of Aaron's robe. What is that? Aaron was, as you might know, or maybe you're finding out for the first time, the brother of Moses and the first priest of God's people. He would go into the tabernacle, which is the place where God dwelt, and he would go as a priest to represent Israel to God and God to Israel. 
God's people. And when Aaron went into the tabernacle, he wore these blinged out priestly garments, a robe, and then this ephod, which was this breastplate. And this ephod had two black stones on it with the names of all the tribes of Israel on it. So in a sense, he was carrying the people of God into God's presence as a priest when he went into the tabernacle. So this psalm unfolds and we see oil drizzling down. And I think oil is the only thing that does drizzle down onto Aaron's clothes, including onto the ephod, onto the names of God's people on them. Oil was associated with anointing and blessing and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So in Psalm 133, we see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on God's people, picturing what ultimately happens in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out <clears throat> on all kinds of people from all over. And now they are joined together in this new holy community. And that unity and that life we share of Jesus is by the Holy Spirit. So then what does the spirit of Jesus do in that communion of saints? What makes it and really us distinct as a result? And this is the second thing I want to say this uh, afternoon, that the communion of saints is a community of Jesus's grace and renewal. It is a community of Jesus work of grace and renewal. You see, to be grouped with other Christians you are doing it ultimately for the sake of Jesus. You seek Jesus. You submit to Jesus. You imitate Jesus. You learn from Jesus. The stories of Jesus' life from the Gospels form you. You seek Jesus in each other. You are marked by Jesus in baptism and you share his life vitally in the Lord's Supper. You see, we don't cluster together because we have the same skin color or vote the same or make the same amount of money, or at least that's not what it's supposed to be the case. Rather, we have gathered around the feet of Jesus because this itinerant preacher from Roman-occupied Israel, by his example and teaching 2,000 years ago, has shown us true life, has shown us true love, real hope, and the true face. So the question that is laid in our lap then this afternoon, individually and as a congregation, is this. Is Jesus what compels you? How does he influence what it means for you all to be the communion of saints in town church? You see, there are plenty of things that can drive you to be a part of God's people that frankly aren't necessarily ideal. When I was in Texas in college in the 90s, the expectation was that most everyone was a Christian and there was this social present, social pressure to be present at church or at least have the appearances of having gone to church. And so it was not uncommon at all uh, in, in college that kids would skip church, then they would show up to lunch dressed in a coat and tie, because even back in the 90s you wore a coat and tie to church in Texas, all right, it's Texas. Uh, but they had they dressed up as if they had gone to church didn't want to go, but they just wanted to give the appearance that they did. They wanted to fake it because of that social pressure. In case you don't know, we don't have that social pressure here in Oregon. 
Uh, if you're coming to church, especially in 2024 in Oregon, the pressure maybe works actually in the other direction. Well, why are you going weirdo? That seems very strange. But there can be a, a twist uh, in our own hearts when there is no social pressure to come. You can end up going as a marker of righteousness. Well, I'm, I'm better than these losers who don't go to church. I'm not floating around just living in myself or, you know, whatever ideas are on the magazine rack at New Seasons. I'm not a relativist. I'm anchored. I'm someone better. I'm, I'm ahead. But you see, the buy-in to be a Christian, the buy-in for the communion of saints, and even to be a saint, to be a holy one, is that you're needy. And you understand yourself to be needy. You aren't convinced you're right and have it together, but rather you have been humble and know that life is truly found for you in the person and work of Jesus. The grace of God alone is what is sufficient for you. You believe that healing starts with this peasant teacher from the first century, that his example, his teaching, the offering is very life for sinners. He chooses to call friends for life. And that is for you and your life as well. So here's another question. Will you be a community of joyful humility? Of patient welcome? In town might be that place where Jesus is present to Portland because you all take Jesus seriously, but not yourselves too seriously. You have care for those who are different than you, worse off than you, bigger hypocrites than you. And friends, we're all hypocrites. We're all struggling to be whole, and that's okay. What does that community look like? We're about to learn the plan. There's really just two approaches to ministry, two approaches to the Christian life, to communion of the saints. First one is this, if you think people are too free, the focus of your ministry and your presence in preaching will be to bind them to law, to enact moral regulation and behavior modification. But if you think people are already bound, then your goal will be to free them, to see them free. Newsflash. Jesus came to set people free. Whether it was those who were possessed by demons, whether it was his own confused family members, strained disciples, or even his theological opponents, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, none of them were objects for him of some legal strategy of change. He offered grace, grace that called for them to surrender, grace that called them to be a part of new creation, to be a part of a new body, a new community, but grace. So when people mess up, behave badly, whether it's people who are Christians or people who are not, in your spirit, be influence. Be the kind of Christian, be the kind of Christian community, the kind of congregation that folks will not hesitate to call, especially in the worst moments of their lives. That when they see you, they see grace. When they see you, they see the mercy of Christ by the cross and the resurrection. That they would believe and they would know and they would feel that your own ministry and existence is downstream of God's love for you in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, would you bind us in this supernatural event of 
preaching to yourself because Jesus is present. He walks among the lampstands. Would you vivify us, encourage us, straighten us so that we might be a kind of community that bears witness to your hope, your Holy Spirit. Frankensteinish though we might be, nonetheless renewed. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.